Welcome to The Lubber's Hole. You are with Ian and Mike as we reread the Aubrey Matcherin novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're a couple of chapters now into Treason's Harbour. Mike, catch us up, please. Where were we last week? What might be coming this week? Yeah, Ian, last week we learned that Malta was full of gossip. Gossip about confidential missions to the Red Sea. Gossip about Jack and Laura Fielding given her dog Ponto's public displays of affection for Jack after he had saved the dog's life. Uh, Jack had whipped the crew into shape with a row out to Gozo, where Jack had visited a lecherous old admiral, Admiral Hartley, and that visit left Jack feeling down. We learned that Andrew Ray, despite a love of plain chant and a very emotional love of plain chant, is actually working for the French intelligence officer Lesseur. Uh, and trying to get his gambling debts paid off. So this week, we're back with Laura Fielding and an amorous oh. Captain Jack Aubrey, Stephen Matron, and the Belle of the World. And we find the French intelligence plot thickening. Ooh, we like a thickening intelligence plot. I think I think it's high time we had some deep intelligence action again. That sounds great. So, Mike, at the very beginning of Chapter 3, we've got this mix of bad news and good news. The bad news is that Jack is still feeling pretty low about this encounter with Admiral Hartley, his old friend who turned into this rather run-down, seedy, lecherous old man. The good news, though, is that the prizes from the Ionian mission had been condemned. This is the taking of a French vessel, I think. So he's got enough money to send some home to Sophie. It says 10 years pay and to get a better room at the hotel and most importantly, to start paying bribes to the dockyard to get the surprise repaired. And, and Mike, th- this reminds me, all those weeks ago when we chatted with Gord Lucko about the, the authenticity of the Aubrey Matcherin stories, Gord, as a former serving naval officer, said that one of the authentic touches that he liked the most about the doings of Captain Aubrey was the, the extensive and benign use of corruption to keep His Majesty's ships afloat. Yeah, it it certainly is one of the absolute realistic touches. And I like your authentic and benign. (laughs) It's certainly benign when it helps our heroes here. (laughs) Oh, yes. And uh, he says often that uh, he and others are tolerably acquainted with the subject. That seems to be the phrase that we use about corruption. Nice. So, Mike, this leaves him hopefully able to, as he says, live heartily while he could. Yeah, he's, you know, he's sort of kind of adopting, I think, both a reaction to Hartley. Uh, having a little bit of money to say, you know, uh, gather you rosebuds while you may here. And, and we find him just starting to do exactly that. Uh, he's in an Italian lesson with Laura Fielding. And O'Brien tells us Jack Aubrey had never deliberately and with malice of forethought seduced any woman in his life. So he's he's not one of these planning guys reading all that, you know, how to be a player books. But he's nevertheless moving his chair just a little closer and closer to Mrs. Fielding. Ponto likes this and is wagging his tail in anticipation. And O'Brien writes, I just love this, very early in the recapitulation of the imperfect subjunctive of the irregular verb stare, Mrs. Fielding saw with alarm that her pupil's conduct was likely to grow even more irregular than her verb. And, and of course, we'll leave it to O'Brien to pick exactly the right verb to have all kinds of connotations here. But he tells us that Mrs. Fielding grew up in the Neapolitan court. 
She'd had her virtue attacked by many men, and she, according to O'Brien, recognized the earliest symptoms of an amorous inclination. So she's upset. She's not making the progress with Stephen that she wants to make. She's got all these rumors going on about her and Jack, and she was in no mood for fooling, as the text says. And just before Jack could suggest that we've done the time, we might as well do the crime. That is to say, (laughs) natural justice requires that all the rumors about their affair be given a solid foundation. She cuts him off by asking if he would please do a favor for him. And I've got to say, I was giving her a silent round of applause as we did this, because for all it's written with this really kind of generous humor about Jack's almost kind of unconscious uh, adulterous conduct. I'm thinking, no, no, this takes us back, you know, three novels to Jack making a fool of himself with women. Uh, we we must stop this. And she handles it really, really well to her credit. Um, uh, O'Brien handles it as well. I think he writes it really well. As you called out, Mike, he, he uses this verb stare, meaning to be, or maybe to ask how, you know, to be in the sense of feeling, how are you feeling? To To be also in the sense of to stay in place. Hmm, good choice of verb. And meanwhile, she decides to handle him by having he, Jack, take dictation. I'm going to go into this uh, <laughs> this little description without attempting her accent. Mrs. Fielding says, You know I am a little talkative, and the dear doctor has often said so, desiring me to peep down, but alas, I am not at all writative, at least not in English. English spelling, Corpo di Bacco, English spelling. Now, if I give you a dictation and you write it down in good English, I can use the words when I write to my husband. And Mike, she uses this this uh, Corpo di Bacco, body of Bacchus. That's some kind of, a, uh, I think the right phrase is a, a minced oath, right? It's a bit of a euphemism. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. This is sort of like, instead of saying, by God, because we're a bit puritanical, we say, by gosh, or by Jove you know, sort of yeah. different deity or body of Bacchus, right? So it, it's a nice bit of character for her, you know, alongside all the cursing, blaspheming sailors and, dare I say it, Irish surgeons <laughs> who are all quite happy with a bit of blasphemy. She's she's being given this slightly more careful, slightly more correct character. And we get even more character for her as she goes on and dictates. So Jack, on her behalf, writes to Mr. Fielding, to Lieutenant Fielding, her husband, to, to say that Captain Aubrey rescued Ponto. And as a result, Ponto runs up to him in the street. Wicked people are saying, therefore, that he, Aubrey, is her lover, but Captain Aubrey is an honourable man who would not insult a brother officer's wife. Beautifully phrased by her. And remember, she's dictating this to Aubrey so that Aubrey writes it in correct English. She has such confidence in his Jack's perfect rectitude that she can visit him without her maid because... This is the funny part. Captain Aubrey knew very well that she would not ply the oar. And Jack looks up and says, ply the oar, ma'am, his pen poised. Is it not right? She says, I was so proud of it. Oh, yes, said Jack. Only the word is spelt rather odd, you know. And he wrote, she would not play the whore very carefully so that the letters could not be mistaken. Oh, no. Oh, Great stuff. So we, we've got the, the fun, we've got the play on words, and this is Jack, the one with all the Aubreyisms, right? Right. He's having an Aubreyism played on him kind of backwards. And I love the fact that it's setting her up as quite a savvy, 
quite a smart, self-assured person. And I think O'Brien wants us to know, given what's going to come later in the chapter, as we see a bit more of the behavior and the situation that she's found herself forced into, that she's not just an ingenue. She's good at sending and receiving nuanced messages, even if her English isn't great. And it reminds me as well, Mike, that earlier on in chapter one, she also got praised by O'Brien for hitting that kind of very savvy note of friendliness with naval officers. So Laura Fielding, she's no pushover. No, no, it's really great. I mean, and she's, as you say, and she handles this so well. I mean, O'Brien even tells us that her way of doing this overcomes Jack's frustration and disappointment because of his, you know, this is his sense of the ridiculous of, of changing this phrase. And, you know, we're reminded yeah. of Jack laughing at his own jokes all the time. So great characterization of Laura Fielding, a great reminder of Jack's little sense of humor. And uh, as you say, sets us yeah. up very nicely for what's to come. And by the way, I think it's great that as soon as we get a, a female character back in the story, and we haven't had Sophie and we haven't had Diana for a couple of months now, it's great that when we have a female character back in the story, she's doing something resourceful and smart. Yes, very much. <laughs> and is in control of her world. And, and funny in her own way too. Yeah. And I've got to offer up a special hello to all of our beer-loving, wine-loving, whiskey-drinking, O'Brien lovers, you women from the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society Facebook group, and love this conversation that we've seen going on this week there. Hope that you will all join us uh, since we we love the women of O'Brien. We love the women who love O'Brien. Absolutely. Well, it's resolved itself nicely here. They're saying goodbye. She reminds her of this party that she's having, this little musical get-together that night. Ask him to please remember to come and to please remind Stephen. And Jack hears Stephen coming up the stairs. He even makes the remark, he often comes up more like a herd of mad sheep than a Christian when he's in a hurry. And, And Stephen bounds up. He's soaking wet. And he announces with great joy that the dromedary has come in. Um, Jack's a little put out wondering why this transport would evoke such excitement. And, you know, Stephen tells him that it's carrying his long-awaited Halley's diving bell. And he is, as Stephen puts it, with child to plunge. He invites (laughs) Jack to come along to his waiting boat. And O'Brien writes this in the local language, which I can't even start to pronounce. Ian, you, you have a go at this the name of this boat here? I have no idea. I think it'd be something like Dreisa, but I I don't know. Maltese is a really kind of crunchy mixture of Arabic and Berber and Italian and Latin languages. It's a a real, real mystery of a language. So I think Dreisa, but who knows? I love it. Well, it's going to come back in again later. And I was fascinated looking this thing up. Apparently that's the generic word in Maltese for boat, but it's specifically used for this. Well, it's used for all boats, but it's also well known as that means the water taxi that carries supplies, carries people, oh, everything else. We'll good. come back with that. But, you know, it's funny. They're so into this conversation good. about the bell that uh, Mrs. Fielding is a bit put out and and says, you know, well, good day, gentlemen. And they realize, oh, yeah, you're still here and, and walk her out and, and try to, uh, you know, see her off uh, before they head over to Stephen's waiting boat. I love it. The the, the line that she, she, it says she was not accustomed to being slighted for a diving bell. And she says, OK, I'm, I'm off now. <laughs> and, right. Another great bit of kind of mature characterization for Laura Fielding. 
And Mike, we're going to see all the way through this chapter in the dialogue between Stephen and Laura Fielding. He's not quite in control of himself when he's talking about the diving bell. And I think there's a really nice ambiguity about whether he's talking about the diving bell to keep the conversation with her going or whether he just can't help himself. He's this kind of excitable kid. And, uh, you know, he's almost like a kid at Christmas. He says again, it is Halley's model, you know, and he goes on to talk with enthusiasm about this local boat, the De Kaiser, how it's going faster, he thinks, with the standing rower facing forward like they do in Venice. And he's feeling super confident. So he turns this into a suggestion to Jack Aubrey about how maybe the Royal Navy could introduce this very laudable practice of, uh, of facing forwards. And this is compared with other suggestions that Stephen has made, including soap allowance for seamen and cutting the grog ration and clean uniforms for the lower deck and abolishing flogging around the fleet. And <laughs> these are falling a little bit on deaf ears. And we're reminded that Anytime Stevens made a proposal, it says these proposals had met with little more success than his present suggestion that, in defiance of all tradition, the Navy should look where it was going. <laughs> and Jack completely blows him off. He's not having anything to do with any of these innovations. We, we know that innovation is a, is a dirty word as far as Jack Aubrey's concerned. But, but, Stephen said something that got Jack thinking. And Jack says, Halley? Comet Halley? The Royal Astronomer? Just so, said Stephen. Yeah. And Jack's got his own observatory back at home. Right. He's a big one on the stars and navigation. So he knows all about Halley's work on the stars, but says he had no idea he was concerned with diving bells. <laughs> Stephen reminds him that he told him all about Halley's article. They've had this conversation before. Jack points out that it happened to have been during a cricket match, and he, you know, he, he had to have Babington take Stephen off because he had to concentrate. But you know, Stephen's saying, you know, I, I told you all this before I ordered this bell, and then he goes into this incredibly detailed explanation about exactly how the bell works, and he, he uses the phrase, uh, you know, a time or two says, and Jack, these are his very words, um, and I love it because if you actually go back. Halley published an article called The Art of Living Underwater in the Philosophical Transactions, just as Stephen stated here, in the early 1700s. And it's full of pictures of this bell and how it works. And Stephen's description is is pulled right from some of that text, just as we know O'Brien so often does here. Oh, fantastic. And then it kind of ends with Stephen is telling Jack about Halley. Uh, recounting being one of five people together at the bottom, meaning the bottom of the sea, in nine or ten fathom water for above an hour and a half. And they weren't bothered at all by lack of air. So Jack uh, kind of misses the fact that, wait a minute, people are 60 feet down walking on the ocean floor, sitting on the ocean floor, and that not bothered by air. Jack is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's five people. How big is this thing? How much does it weigh? And Stephen immediately says, wait, wait, look at that bird over there. Stephen is so often want to do. I I love this dialogue. It's another example of O'Brien putting into the dialogue between Stephen and Jack the kind of misunderstandings that you often get in humor about married couples, right? Oh, I told you this before. Did you? Yeah, but you weren't paying attention. It was during a cricket match. You know, how like a married couple is that? Oh, really? Oh, change the subject. Look at the bird over there. (laughs) Right. That's right. And Stephen's trying, but I think we all know he's trying in vain to play down 
the size of the bell. So that we've still got a bit of a battle on our hands. On the one hand, Stephen tells Jack that the apparent size is just an optical illusion because look, it's in the hold of such a small vessel and you know, on a bigger vessel, won't it look much less imposing? And Jack thinks that he's going to take Stephen to one side and sort of break gently the bad news that actually, actually, this isn't going to fit. Hearing the actual details, though, from the dromedary's master, Jack goes, Good God, help us. Five foot across, eight foot high, close on two ton. How can you ever have supposed that room could be attempted to be made for such a monstrous thing on the deck of a frigate? And there's a shift in the conversation here, Mike, because it's not Stephen now who's the subject of moral disapproval from Seaman. It's Jack who feels the moral disapproval from all the dromedaries, (laughs) who for various reasons, it seems... Are ganging up on Stephen's side. Yeah, they, you know, they they clearly love Stephen, and they love that this is Doctor Halley. This is the, you know, the guy who they navigate by, and they've taken such good care. They polished this bell. They gotten all out. You know, Stephen paid double the rate to get the uh, the transport out to the boat. I suspect he paid pretty well to get the bell over here. So, you know, they all love Stephen yeah. here. Now, Stephen does back off a little bit. He admits that, yes, when he ordered it, it was for the Worcester, certainly not for the surprise. Uh, but he makes some suggestions. There might be some places where it might be stowed on the frigate. And and Jack is kind of beside himself about the impact that this would have on the surprises sailing, on their ability of the ship's men and the sails to function. And, you know, really says this could only even conceivably work on a first rate man of war. And Stephen, God bless him, replies in a quiet voice. It is Dr. Halley's model. (laughs) (laughs) Jack kind of, I think, realizes how hurt Stephen is and and says with uh, O'Brien writes an unconvincing cheerfulness, how happy the port admiral will be to have it. And, you know, he can use it to gather lost cables and hawsers and uh, anchors and 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 I'm sure it's you know he tells Stephen that he will lend him a broad bottom scowl from time to time to look at the bottom with. So he'll let Stephen take the bell out occasionally when they're in port here. Yeah, but it's not enough, is it? The, the Stephen is clearly being uh, sold a little bit short in his aspirations to have the bell with him, and the dromedaries are still on. Stephen's side. They all chime in with how grateful sailors are and should be to Dr. Halley. They, they put all this moral pressure on Jack and they turn to Stephen and ask what he'd like to do with the bell. And it, it then comes out that the bell comes to pieces. Stephen says, pray take it to pieces if that should not be too laborious. And I have some friends, he says, I have some friends in Malta upon whose attachment I believe I can rely. Ooh, <laughs> it's a savage Jack. burn. <laughs> savage burn to Jack. And then Master says, it's no trouble at all. A, a dozen bolts and Bob's your uncle. And then Jack says, well, this is a big let off for Jack. You can almost kind of sense the relief in Jack's voice. He says, well, if it takes to pieces, then the case is altered. It may come aboard and travel below being put together on suitable occasions during calms or when the ship is lying too. I shall send my barge at once which is a great relief to Stephen. It's a great relief to Jack because he's managed to find a way to give his friend some of what he asks for without being made to look stupid. It's a great relief to the dromedaries who were all kind of ganging up on Stephen's side. Mike, it's a great relief to us for one simple reason. I'm just going to say three words, Chekhov's diving bell. Oh, well done, sir. Well done, (laughs) sir. Yes, here we go. We're going we're gonna to have to fire that bell before we get to the third act. 
Well, Ian, I think you spotted a bit of an anachronism in this. We don't often see this with our dear uh, Patrick O'Brien. Yeah, v- very rare. We know that we've uh, we've often found out just how appositely he picks up on period language and uses it in just the right context, in just the right way. This phrase, Bob's your uncle, that was used by, I think, the master of the dromedary or one of the non-commissioned officers, um, dates back to 1887. So says the internet when British Prime Minister Robert, also known as Bob Cecil, also known as Lord Salisbury, appointed his nephew, Arthur Balfour to the post of Chief Secretary for Ireland. And don't get Irish people starting on whether or not they like the doings of Arthur Balfour. It's a <laughs> it's a corner of a rug that you might not want to lift if you care about the cause of the Irish. Anyway, this is a, a pointer towards nepotism and people use it. It's still in use in English now in the sense of, you know, you can't lose. Bob's your uncle. There you go. Easy as pie. Voila, job done. But if it wasn't used until 1887, then it's a bit of an anachronism. So... Sorry, Patrick, 75 years too early. Right. Uh, So at least now we're going to take the diving bell with us. Jack and Stephen are reconciled. And and sailing back, Jack's got a little bit of hurt feelings. He tells Stephen that he felt like Julian the Apostate in the midst of a bench of bishops while he was on the dromedary. You know, he's kind of saying, you know, I can't believe how these guys were sort of ganging up against him here. And he said, if I'd been standing on my own quarterdeck, they would never have presumed to prate about Dr. Halley. And he, he goes on saying that most folks are what he calls meek in my father's house. That is, you know, sort of, you know, authority has its place when you're in your father's house there. Although I'm not yeah. sure I can, I can see Jack doing that in his father's house. But definitely, as Jack starts to think a bit, he remembers how, yeah, well, uh, in in fact, at his home, his, his daughters are not so meek. They kind of call him out pretty soundly here. But as they're sailing along, and then Jack realizes that Hedge Dundas's ship, the Edinburgh, is is just close by, and they have a much bigger launch than the surprises. It's much better positioned in about ten fathoms of water to go retrieve Stephen's bell and suggest that they stop off there, and that perhaps Hedge would actually offer Stephen a dip. But Jack. Still feeling, you know, loving towards his friends, says it might be as well to let a ship's boy or a midshipman go down first, just to make sure it works. <laughs> Somebody expendable. <laughs> he could have said a marine officer <laughs> with a German fleet. So great, well done, Jack. I'm not completely sure that Jack would necessarily have picked up the reference to Julian the Apostate. That might that might have been more in Stephen's wheelhouse. Um, Julian the Apostate was the last pagan emperor of Rome, took Rome from Christianity under Constantine, who who came before him to Neoplatonic Hellenism in an effort to make Rome great again. That sounds mm, familiar. So the Christian Church calls him Julian the Apostate for having you know having not been fully on board Christianity wise. Anyhow, Mike, um, not wanting to tread on the toes of Julian the Apostate, but feeling that it might be necessary to take a little dip, maybe we should take a break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lubbers Hole.
Welcome back. Uh, we're still with the world of diving bells. And this time, just like we always hear about things uh, from Patrick O'Brien, we hear about the dive after the fact as Stephen picks up this conversation with Professor Graham. Professor Graham, sir, a good evening to you, said Dr. Maturin, walking into his colleague's room. I am come from walking on the bottom of the sea. Now, this is Stephen's on 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 a high here, and I'm not completely sure Graham's able to match his mood. Aye, said Graham, looking up from his papers. So I understand they were watching you from the baraka with perspective glasses bubbling away in your inverted cauldron. Colonel Veal laid two and a half to one that you would never come up again. And this is a bit of a blow for Stephen. He says, I trust with all my heart he lost the inhuman wretch. Of course he did, since you are here, said Graham impatiently. Ah, but you're being facetious again, no doubt. The bottom of the sea must have been a sad, stinking, muddy place to judge from your shoes and stockings. So it was too, said Stephen, a great stretch of yellowish-grey mud rippling away in the wonderfully strange light. But the annelids, my dear Graham, the annelids, hundreds, nay thousands of annelids of at least six and thirty several kinds, some plumed and others plain, and wait till I tell you about my holothurians, my sea slugs, my sea cucumbers. And for all Stephen doesn't like enthusiasms and romantic vistas, <laughs> he loves the enthusiasm for the world of nature, and he loves the romantic vista of the bottom of the sea. So, nuts to Rousseau. It, it, it's great, isn't it? He, O'Brien's really fleshing out the characters here. We've got this very childlike glee on Stephen's part to have this new bit of nature to explore, and this very slightly cold fish, Professor Graham, who for all he's now friendly and close with Stephen, he's still not on board with facetiousness. No, no. O'Brien just does such a great job fleshing out these characters and, and the continuity in their personalities. You know, Graham's paying no attention to him because he's he's got his mind wrapped around this party that he wants to give to say goodbye as he goes back to Scotland to, to the Worcesters crew and the Surprises crew. And, and he says that he needs help figuring out the seating chart because in addition to all these naval ranks he has to consider... He's invited some Highland gentlemen, that, that is to say, Scottish soldiers. And for them, he has to arrange them according to the different clans, the precedents within the clans, the precedents of the clans themselves. And he says that even though army rank doesn't matter for, in terms of this party, that there are different Scottish regiments who hold themselves above the other regiments. So he's trying to figure all this stuff out. Yeah, so Stephen's very lighthearted. Remember, he's still really in the world of the diving bell, and he's very offhand. He's, oh, you just number the chairs and let each man draw his number from a hat. You may pass this off with a graceful, witty remark. This is this is from Stephen, who's never once made a graceful, witty remark in, in company, except on very rare occasions in mess dinners. A graceful, witty remark, says Graham. Here. Now, now this little uh, <laughs> expression, it might just be him going, Ugh. it might also be him saying, I'd rather jump off a cliff, because that's what the word means, I think. A, a cliff, a precipice. Yeah. Anyway, he's not impressed with the idea of a graceful, witty remark. I wish it were all over, says Graham. Sure, well, says Stephen, you will like your dinner once you're well set to it. Looking at the bill affair, what are bashed neeps? And Graham offers the perfectly clear explanation. Well, Neeps hack it with Balmagori. And, oh, it's not so much the dinner that I wish to be over and done with it. No, it is the whole of it. So, <laughs> so 
Bash neeps. By the way, this is a very traditional Scottish thing. If you ever talk to anybody at Burns Night, what are the sort of things that you must have on the table at Burns Night? One is haggis, one is whiskey, and the other one is neeps and tatties. So that's the uh, that's the kind of traditional Scottish uh, formal dining fare, I think. But Graham is really anxious about this. Not only the dinner, not only the food, not only the bringing the people together. I think he's anxious to be shot of Malta. I think O'Brien seems to be setting up Graham's opinion of Malta and the loose talk about the confidential mission. This all as being something that he wants to stay away from. Meanwhile, if any of our listeners want to look up a dish for Neeps Hackett with Balmagauri, which is turnips with a slightly sour cream sauce, it's in Lobscouse and Spotted Dog, um, page 70, the Aubrey Matcher and Cookbook. So good luck if that's your uh, if that's your culinary flavor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Graham, it turns out, is taken up with the whole dinner party, but he's also very concerned. I mean, he's telling Matron that he's he's headed for home. He's really glad to be headed for home. He's sorry. He's going to miss Matron and Matron's company, but he tells him, and, and O'Brien writes, he doesn't like the smell of Malta from the point of view of intelligence. There are too many people at work. Too many of them are poor, loose-tongued, clacking bodies, as he says. And he does not like particularly the schemes for the Barbary Coast, not at all. Um, He says that if everybody knew Mahmoud Ali's real sentiments about the Sultan, and this is somebody we're going to come on to hear a little bit more about, this, uh, Graham says, this Red Sea business seems a dubious undertaking. There are many things I do not like at all. And then O'Brien kind of gives us a pause, tells us to uh, pay attention here, because he says that Graham is looking steadily at Matron, and then he asks, tell me, did you ever hear tell of a man named Lesur, Andre Lesur? So here we are, back to this French intelligent master that we've been following his perspective in this book. And now Graham is bringing him up again. What's going on here, Ian? Well, it, it's an odd situation for us because we know about Lesueur as readers and Maturin doesn't yet. He says he, he he's vaguely aware of him as being attached to a French intelligence network run by somebody called Thévenot. He knows nothing about him. And of course, we know already the connection between Lesueur and Ray, but neither Stephen nor Graham have got that yet. So we're in the odd position of being able to see even more of the foreboding than we can normally. Graham says that he thought he saw Lesueur in the Strada Reale, but couldn't follow him. And since Matron was diving and Graham has doubts about this, this secretariat, I think he means the civil service, the administration in Malta, Graham went straight to Ray. Dum, dum, dum. Mm-hmm. And Ray had said, leave it with me. Don't mention it to anyone else. Graham reports that Ray is gathering all his threads to make a single decisive coup de filet, a court, which means a haul or a catch. So this makes me kind of shift nervously in my seat here a bit, Mike. Graham suspects that Lesueur is present. He believes that Ray is going to take care of it. And that might even seem to be the end of the matter. Yeah, I'm... I'm- I'm really worried too. Yeah, I'm worried about who's going to get filleted here and, and afraid it might be our hero. Not, not that it's the French intelligence agents, given what we know about Ray and Lesur. Right. So Stephen says, well, he, he certainly hopes that Ray's successful, but 
he too believes the French are, as he said, well installed here in Malta, just like the English were in Toulon in 1803, that back then they knew every British ship, troop, munitions movement uh, within 24 hours. And I think he thinks that the French are doing the same here with their intelligence on Malta. Graham says that even if Ray was successful with his coup de filet, that there's still this incredible rivalry between the soldiers and sailors on the island of Malta. They're divided councils. There's all this loose talk. And we've got foreigners coming and going to the island who could be you know, gathering intelligence, disseminating it. And with this new military authority, that uh, you know, the secretariat, there's all these discontented natives who could be recruited. They're coming and going on and off the island. And Graham also mentions that he does not like what he calls the untimely zeal of the new commander-in-chief and his followers. So, you know, we haven't met the new commander-in-chief, the new admiral that's going to be coming in to replace the acting heart. Um, But Stephen says, well, maybe we'll know more about the new commander-in-chief at his conference when he comes in tomorrow. But Graham says, no, no, we're not going to learn anything in that meeting because there's going to be, you know, the army's going to be there. There are going to be all these new people Nobody's going to be willing to spill their secrets, uh, you know, the first time getting together here tomorrow. <laughs> so it's it's a relief, really, to hear that, you know, despite the fact that Ray seems to have jumped in and taken care of Lestour, they're both still willing to be cautious about this meeting. Graham has got a bit of a pet peeve going on as well. He has disagreed with and does not like this guy, Figgins Pocock, who is Admiral Sir Francis Ives' Oriental advisor. And Stephen agrees along with this, that the atmosphere in Valletta is unhealthy with all this divided authority at the top. And they bring this part of the conversation to an end with Graham saying that he advises Stephen should keep his distance, should, it says here, mind his physic, his natural philosophy, and his diving bell. Yeah, And that's the cue for Stephen to say, well, yeah, I might do that. But glancing back down at the muddy shoes that Graham had spotted, he realizes that he's going to be late for Mrs. Fielding's dinner party. Now, he doesn't have time to clean the shoes. Graham, with a little bit of a speech, lends Stephen his grandfather's shoes. These shoes are far too big. Stephen, in his rather unworldly way, says, I'm pretty sure size doesn't matter as long as they're kind of packed out at the front and the back. And that will mean that I can carry the cello through the town in clean lamb's wool socks. And he learns that that's not a great idea. His feet begin to swell, chafe, blister, and grow raw. And he pretty much hobbling on unbelievably painful feet by the time he gets on the way up to Mrs. Fielding's party. He's worried that he can't both carry his cello and Graham's grandfather's shoes in his hand. There are a group of whores and street boys that might steal either the cello or the shoes or both if he falls over. He says, I am on the horns of a dilemma. And the book goes on. Even as he defined the horns, so they collapsed. A band of the surprises Liberty men came round the corner and offered to carry both items. So here he is, Stephen ashore, not in great shape, rescued by some sailors ashore. That's a bit of a turn up for the books. Right. <laughs> so unfortunately, these these Liberty men, they they you know, they weren't in their cups fully yet, but they still were kind of carrying on on the way. So they're carrying this stuff. Stephen has to walk at their pace and he gets to Mrs. Fielding's late. And they've already started playing the music. He can hear Jack playing. There's a new flautist that she had talked about earlier in the day. And Stephen recognizes the sound of the flute, says it's a flaute de mort. 
so this a love flute, you know, this is a, a flute. Ian, you know, you you know these better than me, but as I understand it, it's an older, it's kind of longer, it's tuned differently, has kind of kind of a haunting melody, a little quieter, doesn't necessarily stand out. But I'm I'm sure O'Brien picked it for a reason. <laughs> There's a theme for this party, right? Yeah. There is. Plus, he gets to make a vaguely suggestive double entendre uh, playing the love flute. I wonder what can be on Jack's mind. Well, there's. Anyhow, <laughs> this beautiful dusky flauta de more is playing. <laughs> St- Stephen goes in. He sits on the other side of the lemon tree, slips off his shoes, and he's listening to this piece with the flauta de more. When Ponto, licking his private parts, right. drowns out the flute, and this drifts Stephen off into a reverie. He's looking at the fireflies dancing in front of him. He starts to imagine that they're moving in time with the music, and this sends him off into recollecting um, how he learned about American fireflies, where the females of species A imitate the mating signals of species B, and the males come down to find a butcher's block rather than a nuptial couch. And this is Mike, this is no accident. This reminds us of the, the praying mantis juxtaposition that we had way back in Master and Commander, and females imitating false flag versions of mating calls. Perhaps that's how he's thinking about his potential connection with Mrs. Fielding. Right, right. We're certainly getting that danger, Will Robinson. (laughs) Yeah, danger, danger. Well, and and this kind of gets reinforced immediately. Stephen notes the party is much fancier than usual. Instead of the usual lemonade, there's a spiked punch. There are these anchovies with a fiery red paste on bread rather than that one Neapolitan cookie per guest that Mrs. Fielding usually served. And Mrs. Fielding herself, her hair's all done up. She's got much more makeup perfume and a remarkably low-cut flame-colored dress and Stephen does not like that at all he's thinking that men like jack might be moved by this dress and o'brien says that Stephen thought it was cruelly unfair in a woman to excite desire she had no intention of satisfying so with this too strong punch this red paste that kind of makes him gasp and he, it keeps trying to tell himself, what, what is that? You know, the taste reminds him of something, but he can't quite place it. And he notices, too, that, you know, usually these parties are just really relaxed and everybody's loving the music. But now everybody is like all over Mrs. Fielding. She's trying too hard and the men are paying much more attention to her than they are to the music. It's really uneasy, isn't it? This idea that he, Stephen is there. He knows that he's meant to be trying to, to make some connection with Mrs. Fielding, but the whole atmosphere is a bit artificial and it feels like people are on edge or people are kind of acting out of their normal selves. Jack comes along and gets him talking about the diving bell, and that's a little happy moment for Stephen. (laughs) Comes up with this great phrase. He describes it by saying, it is the bell of the world, Jack. Until Mrs. Fielding interrupts them, asking to hear about the bell later after they've played their music. So, Mike, we get a little musical connection here. We hear that they played a Contarini cello sonata, which O'Brien says they had played beautifully before, and I doubt that they had played it beautifully before because Contarini's barely even a composer Still less does he have any record of any cello sonatas, but never mind. Um, Laura plays a bad chord to the disapproval of several other players, and more mistakes follow. And Mike, we get this reference to figured bass. 
So what's going on here is the melody, the violin part is written, and then the bass part, what you might call the left hand of the piano is written, and then a little bit like how a jazz musician might follow a melody and pick up chords written as chord symbols on a chart. In figured bass, which was common in the 18th and 17th centuries, the keyboard player is meant to read these symbols like 6-4 and 5-7 and use those to fill in the chords and fill in the harmony. And if you know the genre of the music and you're in good shape, in good practice, then it's a pretty natural sounding thing to do. But clearly Laura Fielding is not in good shape and her practice deserts her. She plays one false chord and it's noticed by several other people. More mistakes then throw Stephen off. And like the, the climax of all his musical awkwardness is Stephen's A-string broke. And even though the, the cellist in me doubts that the A-string would break when you're playing a slow movement, anyhow, the A-string breaking, that's the, the, the string with the harshest sound and it will have made the most unpleasant twang as it broke. Ouch. So that's pretty much the end of the piece. This, this brings the most sort of awkward and cataclysmic end to this little musical episode in the evening. And this, this gets Stephen wondering what's going on with Mrs. Fielding. Right, right. You know, he, he mentions to Jack that Mrs. Fielding is not in spirits. And O'Brien tells us that Jack looks at her with, you know, yeah. with kind of an unusual goodwill because he had always esteemed women who refused him kindly. And because she looks, in, you know, as O'Brien writes, unusually fine tonight. So Stephen thinks to himself that, you know, she'd probably be happy to see their backs and to get everybody out of here. He's all ready to just kind of go say his goodbyes and say, you know, can I leave my cello here from now on? I don't want to have to drag this through the streets again and and heads off to do that. We're left with Laura and Stephen and a bunch of men who are kind of lingering at the end of the party. There's a Captain Wagstaff and Mike, maybe it's not an entirely accidental double entendre. Captain Wagstaff is asking loudly if Jack had eaten any of the fiery red things. And Laura sort of recruits Stephen, trying to get everyone to leave, and asks him to help serving one more round of drinks. She says, tell them it is a good night hat. A cap, I mean. And she asks Stephen to say so that she can consult him, which is a pretty reliable way of getting Stephen to stick around, I think. Right. So despite the fact that she's thanking everyone for coming, they get even louder. And they notice that these guys are talking with an unusual freedom. And if earlier in the evening she had behaved with a certain wantonness, perhaps artificial wantonness, she regretted it now. But present formality and reserve did not do away with the effect. So this effect that we're still wondering exactly what it is. Liberty, it says, tended to give way to license. And Wagstaff, looking from Jack to Stephen, said, Upon my word, Doctor, you are in luck. There are men who would give a great deal for your place as butler. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Right. Well, Mrs. Fielding has a private word with the commendatore. So, it, you know, in Italian chivalry, this is a rank that would be above the officer, below a grand officer. So I think the commendatore, being kind of the ranking man at the party, gives the word and everybody starts to head out. Um, Wagstaff has to be drug off by his companions as he's about to deliver a particularly unseemly joke. And O'Brien tells us that at the street, as all these people are leaving, an unseen watcher ticked them off his list. So obviously we've got French intelligence monitoring the comings and goings here at Mrs. Fielding's house. And Jack, God bless him, stays home to help Stephen limp home 
But Mrs. Fielding cuts in and asks Jack to put Ponto out in the far court, the court with the cistern, remember where he almost drowned, and asks Jack to please close the door behind him for fear of the cats. And she explains that the doctor will be staying a while longer at her request. And she looks at Stephen with a big smile. O'Brien writes, a smile that Jack intercepted and that gave him a blow as sharp and sudden as a pistol shot. For although he might mistake signals addressed to himself, he could scarcely be mistaken about those flying for another man. He says goodnight graciously. He leaves, but then he says to himself, ah, for fear of the cats upon my word of honor, I should never have believed it of Stephen. Wow. Now, with Stephen left alone with Laura, we really start to find out how this is going to play out between Stephen and Laura. Laura has been desperate to get Stephen to stick around. She's asked to consult him. We notice even that she invites him into the bedroom. Laura asks Stephen to wait in her bedroom while she cleans up. And O'Brien goes on to tell us that it was actually pretty normal in certain parts of society in this era for women to entertain men in their bedroom. She's left wine and food for him. He asks about the maid and learns that the maid's gone. She's gone home for the night. And looking around the bedroom, he realizes it's looking much nicer than usual. There's a portrait of her husband that's been taken away. There's red lighting. There's a plate of these fiery red snacks. And Mike, all these reds are starting to add up for me. Um, A little bit like we had when we met uh, Mustafa in in the Ionian mission. We're getting lots of red colors. She's wearing a red dress. We've got the fiery red paste on the snacks. The light is reddened by the scarf. There's something going on here. Right. So Stephen is trying to remember the smell that he vaguely recognizes in this red paste. And finally, it says the scent gave up its name. Cantarides, more commonly known as Spanish fly, a substance occurring in the wing cases of a thin, iridescent yellowish green beetle with a powerful smell, familiar to every southern naturalist and used externally for blistering and sometimes internally to arouse sexual desire, the most active ingredient of love filters or love potions. So, Stevens let himself be sort of talked into staying alone behind with Mrs. Fielding, <laughs> hanging out in her room, eating these little snacks that have presumably clearly already been having their own effect on the rest of the party. Because Stephen thinks about them roaming around Valletta like a herd of angry bulls and notices that he perceives the effects in himself. And he says, no doubt they will presently increase. So Laura returns. He notices that she's made herself even more beautiful and that she's nervous as she sits beside him. And Mike, this conversation starts very awkwardly. He asks her for some more wine and cake. She replies, I can refuse you nothing, and brings the cake. And also, as he asks for it, a piece of chalk. Right. You know, I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit, this piece of chalk. But I think Stephen's trying to figure out, he's like, okay, this love potion's having its effect. He can tell it on himself. So she returns with this wine and the chalk and the food and one last clean wine glass, she says, and ask him if he dislikes sharing the glass with her. Mm-hmm. He's very forth, you know, straightforward. He does not. Um, and he asked if she would like to consult him as a medical man. 
She says, well, yes. Well, actually, no. Um, and she says, well, I really want to ask your forgiveness first for, for playing so badly. Can you ever forgive me? There's an interesting scene starting to play out. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> and it, it's a really lovely atmosphere of awkwardness. This combination of uh, there's a bit of comedy in the awkwardness between them, but also real kind of almost heartbreaking tension. Laura's really on edge and Stephen's really listening hard to find out what's going on, but he knows that he can't push too far in the direction of assuming that she wants to turn him over to spying because that would betray him and his real role. So we've got this really kind of awkward, agonizing, dancing around the subject between them. There's this pathos and comedy at the same time. It's a bit like a, one of these kind of bittersweet comedy plays in, in, in British playwright language. I would say this sounds like a, almost like a Tom Stoppard or an Alan Akebourne play. Um, and maybe listeners out there can tell us if there are other plays that, that that remind them of the same thing. But there's this very, very kind of awkward theatricality in the interaction between Stephen and Laura here. But for now, we've got this beautifully awkward, half-distant, half-engaged conversation between the two of them. He says, well, of course I forgive you. And she, in return, asks for a kiss, and he plants a very chaste kiss on Laura. And even though he's trying to think of her as a patient... <laughs> He knows he's nearing his limits. He's decided that maybe this is the moment to offer to talk about the bell. And with another tone of desperation, she agrees. And off he goes. And my, part of me is thinking this is childish enthusiasm on Stephen gabbling out of control. But I'm also thinking he's playing a very smart move here. He's being an utter bore about the bell try to provoke her into saying what she really wants. Anyhow, off he goes with his long, detailed explanation. Here comes the reason for the chalk. He's drawing for her a picture of the bell with this little chalk. Um, we get another little double entendre or even single entendre. He gets the little valve on the top of the ball. He says, will I draw you my little cock? And he tells her that uh, he had reached the bottom of the sea and she goes on and asks for descriptions of what he found there. Worms, he cried, such worms, marine worms in great abundance. Um, I made an inconsiderate step into the fetid mud of ages, yet it scarcely disturbed any but the nearest. And he off he goes with an account of the Maltese annelids. And it says he noticed that her bosom was heaving. He knew very well that it was not heaving for him. But he did not realize that grief was the cause until he reached the bizarre mating habits of Polychaeta rubra. Yeah, that, that's always my second to last line, mating habits of Polychaeta <laughs> rubra. <laughs> when, when to his intense embarrassment and distress, he saw tears coursing down her cheeks. His exposition faltered. Their eyes met. She gave him a painfully artificial smile, and then her chin trembled, and she broke into passionate weeping at last. Ah. Oh. Wow. Right now we're starting to find out what's going on here. Yeah, and and she just you know she just kind of imploring. Can she? You know, is there no way that she can make him love her? And and he tells her that these things really have to be reciprocal, or they are nothing. And he says that he knows she cannot be, as he says, enamored of his person. And she says she will prove that she has got this love and desire for him. And he says, no, 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 I'm a medical man. I can tell you are quite unmoved. And he says, look, believe me, there's, you know, there's nothing I like more than to enjoy your last favors, to possess you, he says, as people so absurdly say, but not on these terms of unequal desire. 
it's clear that you wish me to do something of a particular nature. And for a woman of your kind to propose such a sacrifice, it must be unusually important and certainly most confidential. Will you tell me now what it is? And all that he could gather from her disconnected words, writes O'Brien, was that she could not, she dare not. It was too dangerous. There was nothing to tell. And it's funny, he's, he's gone from being the, the babbling nature enthusiast to being almost the confessional priest here. Yeah. He's being very, this kind of mixture of direct and sympathetic. She's continuing to weep. He keeps wondering aloud what might be behind it, finally asking, would it be to do with your husband, my dear? Oh, yes, she cries despairingly, and tears running fast again. They had him in prison. They would kill him if she did not succeed. She dared not tell him she had failed. They had been pressing her to move quickly. Oh, would not dear Dr. Matcherin be kind to her? They would kill him otherwise. And Stephen starts to take charge. Nonsense, he says. They will do nothing of the kind. They have been deceiving you. Listen. Have you any coffee in the kitchen? Ah. And now, Mike, we, we've gone from we've gone from awkward comedy of manners to bare exposition to Stephen finally getting his chance to switch into intelligence mode. This is his best self, and of course, that needs to be fortified with coffee. Yeah, I just I just love that. I love that. You know, you can't like you say. You know, you can completely see a shifting gears here, and and sure enough, with with a coffee, she gradually tells him the entire story about how this started. Uh, you know, with her husband in prison, her helping confidentially with what she thought was, you know, confidential things about marine insurance, and that now she had what she called this much graver mission on which her husband's life depended. You know, she tells Stephen that she was supposed to win Stephen's confidence, learn the names and addresses of his contacts in France, and get the code that he used to communicate with them that they had told her that Matron was involved in finance, perhaps smuggling. Stephen also learns from her that there's this man named uh, Paolo Maroni who brought her her husband's letters. She thought that he was a merchant in Valletta. She didn't know the names or appearances of, of what she thought were probably four different men that she always spoke with in the third confessional on the left in St. Simon's at very specific times. And that she had actually seen one of the men from the confessional. It was one she recognized because he has a strong Neapolitan accent. And he had been speaking with Maroni in the streets. But even though she thought she knew him and could describe him, she really wouldn't because she thought that might risk her husband Charles's life. Yeah, and he might not even be the real deal, right? He, you ready for this? He could be a phony Maroni? Oh, no. <laughs> Did you smoke it? Yeah, I smoked it. <laughs> ain't no bad joke like a dad joke. So now that we're getting to the heart of the matter, she finally decides to show Stephen the letters that she's received from her husband, or allegedly from her husband. And reading the letters, Stephen starts to like um, Fielding. He, the, the letters are full of clear, straightforward affection. The recent ones are shorter and worryingly a little bit more laboured, although they use lots of the same words and expressions. And Stephen is worried that if Charles Fielding is dead and someone else is now writing these letters, then Laura Fielding's life is limited. Pretty soon the moment is going to come when she'll have outlived her usefulness and she'll be killed by these agents. So he kept that thought to himself, suggesting to her that perhaps her husband had a cold or some lowness of spirits 
in these last letters. And she seemed willing to accept that this was the reason. He went on to tell her that Maroney, real or phony, Maroney and his friends were wrong about Stephen Maturin. He's not involved in finance or smuggling. He didn't have any codes or addresses in France. And even though he makes this claim, he can tell that she doesn't believe it. She's not buying it. So he goes on to say, well, he has a friend who works with confidential affairs. Perhaps these men had mistakenly thought it was Stephen since he and his friend are together so much. And since she is so worried about her husband, he, Stephen, is sure that his friend can provide her with things that will satisfy Maroney and make him think that she has done her job well. And then they're going to pretend to be secretly seeing each other and that she will be able to pretend that she's getting this information from Stephen as part of their affair. And Mike, it, it seems like this is all kind of tied up now. It seems like they've hatched their plan and it's taken them all the way through the night. Stephen finally leaves her house as dawn is breaking and he thinks about Ray, wondering if he was the man that Stephen thought he was. Now that makes us wonder, who does Stephen think Ray is? Does Stephen now suspect Ray? Remember, we, we know about Ray, but Stephen doesn't yet. Right. And these could be agents from an unconnected organisation. He's thinking about whether or not he wants to compromise Laura Fielding. The answer is really not. And he thinks about all the false information that he can plant with her and left the courtyard with a big smile on his face. Yeah, I, I love it. He's, you know, he's got this big smile because he's got another chance to really lay one on French intelligence. But the watcher who's checking off everybody that goes by just sees him leaving her place with this big smile on his face thinking, ah, right. He's taking the bait. Lucky, lecherous dog, said the watcher, pulling his hat over his eyes. At the same moment, the air shook with the first of the guns saluting the arrival of the commander-in-chief, and a thousand pigeons flew up into the pure pale blue sky. And here ends chapter three. Interestingly, chapter three ends just like chapter one did with a last look up at the sky. O'Brien likes the idea that this is all taking place beneath the heavens in uh, in Malta. Yes. So, Mike, this, this is starting to sound a little bit like Desolation Island, isn't it? There's a female character that Stephen can use to plant false information. This time, though, I think he cares about her rather more, and she's absolutely innocent, whereas Louisa Wogan was clearly not innocent. Right. But this leaves us with some questions. What's going to happen with French intelligence? Is is Ray working for the French? Is Stephen going to figure that out? What about all of Graham's concerns. Yeah, and and I'm a little worried. You know, here we've got Stephen and Jack drawn to the same woman. The woman has rebuffed Jack, but clearly now Jack thinks she's with Stephen. I sure don't want to see another post-captain-like reaction from Jack with the two of them drawn here. Oh, no. Yeah, and we still have this same, you know, the beginning of the book about harboring treason. Who is harboring treason? We've got a number of candidates now, but I'm, I'm like the surgeon's mate. I'm anxious to find out who fulfills the title mantle in this book here. I do want to take a moment, though, Ian. We've gotten some new Patreon supporters, and we want to say thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon, and a special hello and welcome aboard to our new supporters. So, Mike, um, we indulged in a bit of social media hijinks um, a few days ago. We quite liked the idea of substituting the word goat for boat in famous quotations and sayings and even movie titles and song titles. So we asked all of our friends on Facebook 
and on Twitter to see if you had any ideas for ways of making everybody laugh with basically comedy boat goat Aubreyisms. So, Mike, the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society, they turned up some gold. What did we find there? They did. What one, one that I particularly loved was Kathy Bowden, who had also a, a great goat emoji. One hand for you and one hand for the goat. Great work, Kathy. Well, we also got some replies directly on the Lubbers Hole Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Hole. Rob Steele said, three men in a goat to say nothing of the dog. And then he goes on, wait, no. So he's a Jerome K. Jerome scholar. Well done, Rob. We like that. Yeah. Ian, for Twitter, row, row, row your goat gently down the stream. Thank you, Brana. <laughs> little touch of the absurd to that one. Oh. Yeah, we like that. But, Mike, uh, we've we've debated this with the jury, and we have uh, the one that made both of us absolutely, well, it made me spill my coffee. Yeah, I, th- I think we need a drum roll here. I think we do. We'll, yeah, little drum roll. Here it comes. From Brenda Nobbs on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society, and also from Damon Samuel Smith on Twitter, we have the wind in the willows. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as messing about in goats. Thank you very much. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Good work. <laughs> Thank you for all of that. Thank you for the fun. Um, sorry to anybody whose uh, who's great suggestion we didn't read out. We had a lot of fun giggling at those a couple of days ago. A glass of wine or even a dish of goat's milk with every single one of you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, the sun is over the yard arm somewhere in the world. Our women friends on the Facebook page are all enjoying a glass of beer. What do you say, after a couple more glasses of beer, to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart, Ian. Wait, wait, look at that bird over there. Stephen is so often one to do. <laughs> <laughs>